0: Hello Greek History Podcast listeners, your host Ryan has graciously given me the opportunity to introduce myself. I'm Janelle Rhiannon, creator of the Greek Mythology Retold Podcast and author of the Homeric Chronicles series. Like Ryan, my passion is anything ancient Greek related. My current project focuses on the exploration and development of Trojan War-era mythological characters with the primary focus on giving voice to the heroines alongside the heroes. My first three podcasts set up a chronological outline of the years leading up to the war in a way you've never heard before. The next several episodes are grouped as the Wonder Women of Greek Mythology, where I share what I've developed for characters like Clytemnestra, Leda, Hecuba, and Penelope, with more to come. Check my episodes out at Greek Mythology Retold, available on all major podcast platforms. And thanks, Ryan, for sharing your audio waves with me, Janelle Rhiannon. Drink that wine and be merry, Greek history lovers.
1: I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, episode 84, Pluralists and Other Physiologoi. On the last episode, we discussed the main philosophical doctrines of the Eleatics of the 5th century BC. They evolved in opposition to the theories of the early Milesian Monists of the 6th century BC, who explained all of existence in terms of one primary matter, as well as to Heraclitus, who declared that all existence may be summed up by perpetual change. The Eleatics, on the other hand, maintain that the true explanation of things lies in the conception of a universal unity of being. According to their doctrine, the senses cannot truly discern this unity, because their reports are inconsistent, and so it is by thought alone that we can pass beyond the false appearances of our senses, and arrive at the knowledge of being, or the fundamental truth that all is one. Then we discussed one response to this, by the so-called atomists, Leucippus and Democritus. Another response would come from the pluralist school of philosophy, who received this name because their adherents rejected the idea that the diversity of nature can be reduced to a single principle, which is what the Ionian monists posited. The pluralists also attempted to reconcile Parmenides' rejection of change with the apparently changing world of sensual experience. The pluralist school consisted of its founder Anaxagoras, his pupil Archelaus, and Empedocles. Anaxagoras was born in Clasomeni in 510 BC, at a time when Asia Minor was under the control of the Persian Empire. He had served in the Persian army and may even have been a member of the Persian regiments that entered mainland Greece during the Greco-Persian Wars. Though this remains uncertain, it would certainly explain why he came to Athens around the time of the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC and he would remain there for the next 30 years. As the most notable philosopher in Athens until Socrates, he is credited with being the first to transfer the philosophy and the spirit of scientific inquiry from Ionia to Athens. And it was in Athens where he became associated with Pericles, who learned to love and admire him. Under Anaxagoras' influence, it's likely not a coincidence that Pericles helped to develop Athens into a center for philosophical speculation and other cultural activities. This would be the backdrop for the careers of the Sophists and Socrates. In fact, Anaxagoras brought together many of the themes from other pre-Socratic philosophers, and so he can be seen as a sort of philosophical bridge in Athens to Socrates. Anaxagoras wrote a single book on his philosophical musings, but only fragments of the first part have survived, through preservation in the work of Simplicius, who was one of the last Neoplatonists of the 6th century AD, and who wrote extensive commentaries on the works of Aristotle. In addition, his works have preserved much information about earlier philosophers, which would have otherwise been lost. So thanks to Simplicius, we know quite a bit about Anaxagoras. We also get mentions of Anaxagoras in the works of Plato and Aristotle. In particular, Plato's Phaedo illustrates Anaxagoras' first famous idea, or more accurately, Socrates' disappointment with Anaxagoras' cosmos, which was produced and ordered by what he called nous, meaning mind or reason. Socrates, though, had hoped that Anaxagoras was going to explain why mind is like an all-powerful creator god who planned and designed everything in the universe to be as good as it possibly could be. But instead, Anaxagoras' mind isn't some creator god, but is the agent behind the physical processes of the universe, as an all-knowing and all-powerful, independent and infinite agent that interacts upon all physical substances and controls everything that lives. It's unclear, but it seems that mind is responsible for all of the special abilities of people, animals, and plants, essentially why some can think, see, and so forth, while others cannot. Furthermore, some creatures have received a greater share of mind, while others have a lesser share. The implication here is that humans have more in them than other animals, and some humans have more than other humans. In short, Anaxagoras' mind is distributed unequally throughout the universe. Supposedly, a disappointed Socrates then went on to develop what he thought Anaxagoras' mind should have been, into his, meaning Plato's, theory of forms. Anaxagoras' second famous idea can be described as universal mixture. Before the cosmos was formed, there was only mind, which would remain unmixed, and another infinite substance, into which all other things were mixed together. Amongst this mixture, there were what he calls seeds, which later would develop into distinctive substances, like air, water, and so forth. The unmixed mind's first appearance, and the only manifestation of it which Anaxagoras describes, is motion, when it initiates the formation of the cosmos, by somehow orchestrating a cosmic rotation, causing the infinite mixture of seeds to start spinning around and around. As the rotations take place, the lighter seeds make their way to the edges, and become air, while the moist and dense seeds congregate towards the middle and become water and earth. At some point, some of the earth-like seeds spin out of the center and become the heavenly bodies, like the sun and the moon, that burn with heat. This theory seems to be influenced quite a bit by the early Ionian philosophers. In particular, Anaximenes believed that dense bodies collect in the middle of the cosmos, whereas air and fire are rarefied and thus are lighter. It seems, then, that Anaxagoras has combined Anaximenes' theory with Xenophanes' god, who just by thinking shapes all things, plus adding in his own unique ideas. However, even though the seeds are separated out, nothing apart from mind is ever completely separated, as the original intermixture of things is never wholly overcome. As he puts it, everything is in everything. This relates to Anaxagoras' belief that all things existed in some way from the beginning. In responding to the claims of Parmenides on the impossibility of change, Anaxagoras took a different direction than the atomists. Although Anaxagoras agreed with Parmenides that nothing can come from absolute non-being, he instead suggests that absolute change is not necessary, because each thing contains in itself parts of all other things. In addition, possibly in response to Zeno's paradoxes, Anaxagoras posited that any material substance can be divided infinitely, though he says that every portion of it, no matter how small or large, will still contain all of the universe's ingredients. Essentially, everything exists in infinitesimally small fragments of themselves, endless in number, but in a varied and indistinguishable form, or else everything would just be the same. Anaxagoras describes the world as a mixture of primary ingredients, where material variation was caused by a particular ingredient's relative preponderance over the other ingredients. In his words, quote, Each one is most manifestly those things of which there are the most in it. End quote. Essentially, all ingredients are present in everything, but they are in different, unique proportions. And so out of this process arises all of the things that we see in this world. Another important question to consider about Anaxagoras' universal mixture theory is what are his so-called ingredients? This is controversial among scholars, but they seem to be very generic properties, like hot and cold, or rare and dense. If this is a correct interpretation, Anaxagoras thus believes that nothing can be so hot that it would have no mixture of cold in it, and vice versa. Rather, there must be a kind of continuum between hot and cold where some of each are present in various proportions, and likewise for other basic oppositions, like moist and dry. And so we should probably think of these universal ingredients as kinds of simple properties rather than measurable materials. Another question to ponder is how do two ingredients mix? For the atomists, the two would juxtapose— But for Anaxagoras, as well as other philosophers like Aristotle and the Stoics, they would be completely mixed with one another. Only Anaxagoras, though, went so far as to say that everything could be found in everything else. Because Anaxagoras viewed material objects as composed of infinitely divisible particles and conceived of their organization as the work of a force he called nous, from this came his nickname, and so he was known as the nous, or the mind. Anaxagoras also gave a number of novel scientific accounts of natural phenomena, such as eclipses, meteors, rainbows, and the sun. For example, his observations of the celestial bodies and the fall of meteorites led him to form new theories of the universal order, and to put a punitive prediction of the impact of a meteorite in 467 B.C. He was both famous and notorious for his scientific theories, including the claims that the sun was not a deity, but rather a white-hot, fiery mass of stone, a little larger than the Peloponnese, and that the heavenly bodies, such as the stars, were masses of stone torn from the earth and ignited by rapid rotation. He believed that the moon, because it is made of earth and has plains and ravines on it, has no light of its own, but takes it from the sun, He thought that the rainbow is a reflection of the sun, possibly taking a guess at refraction. He also was the first to give a correct explanation of eclipses, saying that eclipses of the moon occur because it is screened by the earth, and those of the sun occur because of screening by the moon. At the same time, he thought that the earth was flat, floating with support by strong air underneath it, and disturbances in this air sometimes caused earthquakes. According to Diogenes Laertes, in his later life, all of his unique views on the universe caused him to be prosecuted for impiety by Cleon around 450 BC. Unfortunately, we don't know much about the trial, just that his close friend Pericles spoke in his defense to the jury. The charges may have been political, though, owing to his association with Pericles, if they were not outright fabricated by later ancient biographers, because the political enemies of Pericles had often sought to undermine his position throughout that following decade by bringing his known associates to trial. Then again, his theories of the cosmic mind is not at all like traditional Greek religious thought, so he may have actually been accused of impiety. Plutarch relays a different account, though, saying that Pericles had sent his former tutor out of Athens for his own safety after the Athenians began to blame him for the First Peloponnesian War, which we discussed in episode 42. Regardless of how, Anaxagoras was forced to retire from Athens to Lampsacus in the Troad, where he died in 428 BC. The citizens of Lamsacus so revered Anaxagoras that they erected an altar to mind and truth in his memory and would observe the anniversary of his death for many years to come. Empedocles was a slightly younger contemporary to Anaxagoras. Although we are unsure who may have influenced whom, Aristotle consistently presented the two of them together by comparing their two cosmic schemes in various ways. And so, both are considered by modern scholars to be a part of the pluralist school of philosophy, though they didn't live near one another. Empedocles was born around 490 BC in Acragas in Sicily. Very little is known about his early life, but according to Diogenes Laertes, he was from a distinguished family, and his father Meton was instrumental in overthrowing a tyrant of Acragas, presumably Thrasydeus, the son of Theron, in 470 BC, which we discussed in episode 29. Empedocles continued this family tradition by helping to overthrow the succeeding oligarchic government. He is said to have been magnanimous in his support of the poor and severe in persecuting the overbearing conduct of the oligarchs, and he even declined the sovereignty of the city when it was offered to him. Despite living in Magna Graecia, and although he was acquainted with the theories of the Eleatics and the Pythagoreans, Empedocles did not belong to any one definite school. An eclectic in his thinking, he combined much that had been suggested by Parmenides, Pythagoras, and the older Ionian schools. Timaeus and Dicarchus, two historians of the late 4th century BC, said that Empedocles journeyed to the Peloponnese later in his life, where he was held with great admiration. Diogenes Laertes mentions his stay at Athens and his eventual migration to the newly found colony of Thurii in the late 440s BC. There are also dubious reports, notably by Pliny, of him traveling far to the east to the lands of the Magi. That's because he was a firm believer in the Orphic mysteries and was said to have practiced the art of the Magi, as well as a scientific thinker and a precursor of physics. Aristotle places him in very close relation to the atomists and to Anaxagoras. In addition, Diogenes Laertes says that Empedocles was acquainted or connected with both Parmenides and Anaxagoras. Regardless of who he may or may not have known personally, he seems to have been very knowledgeable about the works of his contemporaries. The only pupil of Empedocles who is mentioned is the sophist Gorgias, who originally was from Leontini in Sicily, but would move to Athens and become so influential that Plato would later write a dialogue in his honor. We will discuss Gorgias in more detail in a future episode. Empedocles is generally considered to be the last Greek philosopher to have recorded his ideas in verse, namely in hexameter poetry. Some of his work has survived, in fact more so than is the case for any other pre-Socratic philosopher, and the surviving fragments of his teaching are from two poems, titled Purifications and On Nature. Empedocles was undoubtedly acquainted with the didactic poems of Xenophanes and Parmenides, as allusions to the latter can be found in the fragments, but he seems to have surpassed both of them in the animation and richness of his style, and in the clearness of his descriptions and diction. In fact, Aristotle called him the father of rhetoric, and although he acknowledged only the meter as a point of comparison between the poems of Empedocles and the epics of Homer, he described Empedocles as Homeric and powerful in his diction. The Roman philosopher Lucretius speaks of him with enthusiasm, and evidently viewed him as his literary model. The two poems together comprised 5,000 lines in total, though only about 550 of those lines have survived. And because ancient writers rarely mentioned which poem they were quoting, it is not always certain to which poem the quotes belong. Some scholars believe that there was only one poem, and that the purifications merely form the beginning of one nature. Regardless, we possess only about 100 of the 3,000 lines that have been ascribed to his purifications. It seems to have given a mythical account of the world, which may have been part of Empedocles' philosophical system. At the same time, there are about 450 lines extent of Empedocles' own nature, including 70 lines which have been reconstructed from some papyrus scraps known as the Strasbourg papyrus. The poem originally consisted of 2,000 lines of hexameter verse, and was addressed and dedicated to Pausanias, a Sicilian physician who was said to be the Eromenos, or beloved, of Empedocles, meaning that they were in a pederastic relationship. It was this poem, as the title suggests, which outlined his philosophical system on the nature and history of the universe. As with the Milesians, the Eleatics, Anaxagoras, and the Atomists, one of the main worries for Empedocles was how change is possible, and the basis for the relationship of the one and the many. He appears to have been partly in agreement with the Eleatic school, and partly in opposition to it. On the one hand, he maintained the unchangeable nature of substance, agreeing that nothing comes from non-being. But on the other hand, he supposes that the things which already exist, like the atomists' infinity of unchanging atoms, alter or recombine in different ways. For Empedocles, there is a plurality of substances based on the idea of four primary elements of the universe, those being earth, air, fire, and water. In other words, the various states of matter are represented as energies, gases, liquids, and solids. Also, Empedocles didn't actually call these elements, or stoicheion in the Greek, a term which seems to have been first used by Plato. He also doesn't use the air, earth, water, and fire labels either, but rather the names of gods to refer to them, such as Zeus, Hera, Nestus, and Idonius, respectively. According to the different proportions in which these four indestructible and unchangeable elements are combined with each other, the difference of the structure is produced. It is in the aggregation and segregation of these elements that Empedocles, like the atomists, found the real process, which corresponds to what is popularly termed as decease and growth, or decrease and increase. Decease and growth represent a new aggregation, or synchrisis, and disruption, or diachrisis. For Empedocles, nothing new comes or can come into being, and so the only change that can occur is a change in the juxtaposition of one element with another element. Empedocles' theory of the four elements became the standard dogma for the next 2,000 years. In response to those who might doubt that the world in all of its complexity, with all of its terrestrial phenomena and biological processes, can emerge from these four elements. Empedocles points out that painters fashion images of all things from just a few pigments. But his analogy of the painter suggests that someone or something caused them to come together in the way that they do. Empedocles, though, was not arguing for some grand designer god. For him, the four elements are simple— eternal, and unalterable. And as change is the consequence of their mixture and separation, it was also necessary to suppose the existence of moving powers that bring about mixture and separation. And so, all of the physical substances of the universe were produced when the twin cosmic forces of Philotus, or love, and Nykos, or strife, reacted upon these four elements, mixing and separating them into various proportions— These forces were ultimately responsible for the formation of plants, animals, stars, the earth, sun, moon, and all of the other components of the cosmos. And so love and strife explain the universe's variation and harmony as attractive and repulsive forces respectively, which are plainly observable in human behavior, but which also pervade the universe. The fact that Empedocles has two cosmic principles gives him the opportunity to put forward his theory of cosmic cycles, in which both forces wax and wane in their dominance, but neither force ever wholly escapes the imposition of the other. When love is completely dominant, all of the four elements were mixed together in total harmony. He describes this condition as the best and original state, where the four elements and the two powers coexisted in a condition of rest and inertness in the form of a sphere, The separating power of strife guard the extreme edges of the sphere, but as strife exerts its influence, the elements are separated out from one another. Ultimately, the elements become completely separate. Since that time, strife gained more sway, and the bond which kept the pure elementary substances together in the sphere was dissolved. The elements became the natural phenomena that we see today, full of contrasts and oppositions, operated on by both love and strife. Empedocles assumed a cyclical universe whereby the elements return and prepare the formation of the sphere for the next period of the universe. When dominated totally by love or strife, there are no people, animals, or plants. Empedocles thus seems to think that the current order in the cosmos shows that love is still exerting significant influence. As part of his cosmological philosophy... Empedocles also dealt with the first origin of plants and animals, and with the physiology of humans. As relayed by Simplicius in his On the Heavens, and Alien in his On Animals, Empedocles posited that animals emerged in stages. As the elements entered into combinations, there appeared strange results. Heads without necks, arms without shoulders, and so forth. So at first, animals didn't emerge in whole, but only individual limbs and organs. Then, as these fragmentary structures met, there arose more complex creatures, such as those with horned heads on human bodies, bodies of oxen with human heads, figures of double sex, and so forth. Aristotle quotes Empedocles' example of an ox with the face of a man. But most of these products of natural forces disappeared as suddenly as they arose. Maintaining that these combinations were randomly produced, Empedocles conjectured that these monstrous forms had perished through their failure to adapt. Only in those rare cases where the parts were found to be adapted to each other did the complex structures last. And so the organic universe sprang from spontaneous aggregations that suited each other, as if this had been intended. Soon, various influences reduced creatures of double sex to male and female, and the world was replenished with organic life. It is possible to see in this theory an anticipation of Darwin's theory of natural selection, although Empedocles was not trying to explain evolution, because he didn't purport the idea that species carry on inherited features that were selected to make them more likely to survive. Reproduction, for him, only comes in the fourth and final stage when those suitable animals, mainly the ones we have now, had been produced. So fitness for survival is what made reproduction possible, not the other way around. Empedocles also describes theories on perception and knowledge. He is credited with the first comprehensive theory of light and vision, as he put forward the idea that we see objects because of light streams out of our eyes. While physiologically flawed, this became the fundamental basis upon which later Greek philosophers and mathematicians, like Euclid, would construct some of the most important theories of light, vision, and optics in the ancient world. According to various fragments of Aristotle, Empedocles believed that knowledge can be explained by the principle that the four elements in the things outside of us are perceived by the corresponding elements in ourselves. In other words, like is known by like. Empedocles also attempted to explain certain natural biological phenomena. For example, in a fragment of Aristotle's treatise titled On Respiration, Empedocles attempted to explain the phenomena of respiration by means of an elaborate analogy with the clepsydra, an ancient device for conveying liquids from one vessel to another. This fragment has sometimes been connected to a passage in Aristotle's physics where he refers to people who twisted wineskins and captured air in clepsydras in order to demonstrate that void does not exist. There is, however, no evidence that Empedocles performed any experiment with clepsydras. Regardless, the fragment certainly implies that Empedocles knew about the physical nature of air, but he says nothing whatsoever about the void. The clepsydra was a common utensil and everyone who used it must have known, in some sense, that the invisible air could resist liquid. Still though, in discussing respiration, Empedocles said that the whole body is full of pores, meaning that respiration takes place over our whole frame and not just the respiratory system. In the sensory organs, these pores are especially adapted to receive the effluences, which are continually rising from the bodies all around us. For Empedocles, this is how perception occurs. For example, certain particles go forth from the eye in order to meet similar particles given forth from the object, and the resultant contact constitutes vision. Perception is not merely a passive reflection of external objects, but an active phenomenon. According to Sextus Empiricus, a philosopher of the 2nd century AD, Empedocles noted the limitation and narrowness of human perceptions by saying that we see only a part, but believe that we have grasped the whole. But the senses cannot lead to truth, as thought and reflection must look at something from every side. It is the business of a philosopher then, while laying bare the fundamental difference of elements to show the true identity of that which exists between what seem to be unconnected parts of the universe. Empedocles also had a mystical side, as he claimed to have miraculous powers, including the destruction of evil, the curing of old age, and the controlling of wind and rain. His brilliant oratory, his penetrating knowledge of nature, and the reputation of his marvelous powers, which included the curing of diseases, the averting of epidemics, the curing of one city from the plague, and the raising of a woman from the dead, all produced many myths and stories surrounding his name, not unlike Pythagoras. His mysticism was also aided by the way he looked as he was said to have had long, flowing hair, crowned with wreaths, and wore a purple robe and distinctive bronze-soled sandals. His proximity to southern Italy, where Pythagoreanism was flourishing in the 5th century BC, helps to explain the Pythagorean influence in some of his ideas, including his vegetarianism and his belief in the transmigration of souls. In other words, that souls can be reincarnated between humans, animals, and even plants. In fact, in regards to the latter, he tells us in one fragment that he can confirm this because in previous lives, he had been a boy, a girl, a bird, a fish, and even a bush. He was a vegetarian and advocated vegetarianism, since the bodies of animals are the dwelling places of punished souls. In a chilling scene in another fragment, he describes a father who brutally slays his child, despite his screams. The idea being that the sun had previously died and has been reincarnated as an animal that is being sacrificed on the altar. It was probably in his Purifications, which contain these stories about souls, where we are told Ampedocles' beliefs that there were once spirits who lived in a state of bliss, but after they committed a crime, the nature of which is unknown, they were punished by being forced to become mortal beings, who then reincarnated from body to body, and between humans, animals, and even plants. The moral conduct, recommended by Empedocles in the Purifications, may have been guidance to allow us to become the gods again. Wise people who have learned the secret of life are next to the divine, and their souls, free from the cycle of reincarnations, are able to rest in happiness for eternity. In this way, Empedocles would boast that he was a god who had been reduced to mortality, like other divine spirits, or daemones, but eventually he would regain divinity after a cycle of reincarnations. Because of his supposed miraculous powers, he was worshipped as a god by the people who begged him to bestow prophecy and healing upon them. It's only fitting, then, that Empedocles' death was mythologized by ancient writers, and thus has been the subject of a number of literary treatments. According to Aristotle, he died at the age of 60, around 430 BC, even though other writers have him living up to the age of 109. One tradition, which is traced to the 4th century BC philosopher and astronomer Heraclides Ponticus, represented him as having been removed mysteriously from the earth, whereas Diogenes Laertes had him perishing by throwing himself into the flames of Mount Etna in Sicily in order for his body to vanish without a trace, and thus prove that he had become an immortal god. The trick was discovered, though, when his bronze sandal was spewed out with the lava and discovered on the edge of the volcano's mouth. The third member of the pluralist school of philosophy was Archelaus, who flourished at some point during the 5th century BC, as his dates are unknown. He was born in Miletus and was said by Diogenes Laertes to have moved to Lampsacus, where he became a pupil of Anaxagoras. Eventually, like his teacher had done before him, Archelaus established himself at Athens, where he was called Physicus due to the natural philosophy that he taught. In fact, he was said to have even taught Socrates, However, if he was the instructor of Socrates, he is never mentioned by Xenophon, Plato, or Aristotle, and so the story may have been an attempt to connect Socrates with the Ionian school. However, Diogenes Laertes does report, on the authority of Ion of Chios, who was a contemporary of Socrates, that Socrates went with Archelaus on a trip to Samos. Another tradition holds that the tragic poet Euripides derived from Archelaus an enthusiasm for science and humanity, but this story may have arisen from a confusion with Euripides' patron, later in life, who was also named Archelaus, this one the king of Macedon. No fragments of Archelaus have survived, but his doctrines have been somewhat preserved in extracts by much later authors, including not only Diogenes Laertes and Simplicius, but also Stobaeus a compiler of valuable Greek extracts from the 5th century AD, Pseudo-Plutarch, an anonymous author dating to the 3rd and 4th centuries AD who wrote the Doctrines of the Philosophers, which has been misattributed to Plutarch, and St. Hippolytus of Rome, a Christian theologian of the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD. Accordingly, Archelaus held that air and infinity are the principle of all things, by which Pseudo-Plutarch supposes that he meant infinite air, which seems to mean that he was in agreement with Anaximenes. We are told by Stobaeus that with this statement, Archelaus intended to exclude mind from the creation of the world. If so, he abandoned the doctrine of his teacher Anaxagoras at its most crucial point. And so it seems safer to conclude that while he wished to teach the materialist notion that the mind is formed of air, he still held infinite mind to be the cause of all things, which is the explanation that Simplicius puts forward. For Archelaus, the cosmos began with primitive matter, which can be identified with air mingled with mind. And by a process of thickening and thinning, there arose cold and warmth, or water and fire, one of which is passive and the other active. And so Archelaus deduced the principle of motion from the opposition of heat and cold, caused by the will of the material mind. This opposition separated fire and water, and produced a slimy mass of earth. While the earth was hardening, the action of heat upon its moisture gave birth to animals, which at first were nourished by the mud from which they sprang forth. And these animals gradually acquired the power of propagating their species. Humans also appear but in lower forms at first. All of these animals were endowed with mind, but humans eventually separated from the others and established laws and societies. As recorded by a Diogenes Laertes, it was from this point of his physical theory that Archelaus seems to have passed into ethical speculation by the proposition that right and wrong are not by nature, but by custom, a dogma possibly suggested to him by the contemporary sophists working alongside him in Athens. Of the other doctrines of Archelaus, St. Hippolytus records that he agreed with Anaxagoras in asserting that the earth was flat, but he posited that its surface must be depressed towards the center, because if it were absolutely level, the sun would rise and set everywhere at the same time. He also said that the sun was the largest of the stars. According to Pseudo-Plutarch, Archelaus accounted for speech by the motion of the air, And so, Archelaus seems to have adopted and transformed the views of Anaximenes, Anaxagoras, and Empedocles. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. The History of Ancient Greece is sponsored by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. That's because they strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. And my favorite part about Robinhood is the design of the app and its ease of use. Thanks to its simple and intuitive, clear design, its data is presented in an easy-to-digest, non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers like myself to invest for the first time with true confidence. It's so simple that with their easy-to-understand charts and market data, you can place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You learn how to invest as you build your portfolio by discovering new stocks and tracking favorite companies with a personalized news feed. And custom notifications for price movements will make it so that you never miss the right moment to invest. And the best part, Robinhood is giving my listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at grease.robinhood.com. That's G-R-E-E-C-E dot R-O-B-I-N-H-O-O-D. Com. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. There were also a few other lesser-known pre-Socratic philosophers during the 5th century BC. For example, Hippon was variously described by later sources as coming from Regium, Metapontum, or Samos, and it is possible that there was more than one philosopher with his name. Although he was a natural philosopher, Aristotle and his metaphysics refused to place him among the other great pre-Socratic philosophers, Quote, because of the paltriness of his thought, End quote. Simplicius tells us that at some point Hippon was accused of atheism, but as his works have perished, we cannot be certain as to why. However, he was accused of impiety by the comic poet Cratinus in his panoptai, and according to Saint Clement of Alexandria, Hippon supposedly ordered the following couplet to be inscribed on his tomb, quote, behold the tomb of Hippon, human death fate made an equal of the immortal gods." According to Saint Hippolytus, Hippon held water and fire to be the primary elements, with fire originating from water and then developing itself by generating the universe. Simplicius also says that Hippon thought that water was the principle of all things. Most of the accounts of his philosophy suggest that he was interested in biological matters. He thought that there was an appropriate level of moisture in all living things, and disease is caused when the moisture is out of balance. He also viewed the soul as arising from both mind and water. A scolion on Aristophanes' clouds attributes to Hippon the view that the heavens were like the pinigius or dome, of an oven covering the earth. The final pre-Socratic philosopher that we haven't discussed is Diogenes of Apollonia, who was born around 460 BC in the Malaysian colony of Apollonia Pontica in Thrace, present-day Sosapol on the Black Sea. Nothing is known for sure of the events in his life, except that he also lived for some time in Athens. Diogenes Laertes states that, quote, "great jealousy nearly put his life in danger in Athens." End quote. But there may be confusion with Anaxagoras here, who is mentioned in the same passage. Like all of the physiologoi, or natural philosophers, he wrote in the Ionic dialect, In the clouds of Aristophanes, it is thought that some of the eccentric views of Diogenes were transferred to Socrates. Diogenes adopted many principles of the Milesian school, especially the single material principle. His most famous work was called Peri Physios, or One Nature, some fragments of which are preserved, chiefly by Simplicius in his commentary on physics, but also by Diogenes Laertes. Like Anaximenes, Diogenes believed that air was the one source of all being, and explained the nature of the universe by saying that all other substances are derived from air by condensation and rarefaction. Air is limitless and eternal, and as it condenses and rarefies, and thus changes its properties, the other forms come into being. But this is where he diverges from Anaximenes. Having been influenced by the theories of his contemporary, Anaxagoras, he asserted that air, as the primal force, was intelligent. Simplicius quotes him saying, And it seems to me, that which possessed thought is what people call air, and that by this everyone both is governed and has power over everything. For it is this which seems to me to be God, and to have reached everything, and to arrange everything, and to be in everything. And there is not a single thing which does not share in it. End quote. Diogenes also adopted Anaxagoras's cosmic thought, believing that there was an infinite number of worlds and an infinite void, that air densified and rarefied, producing the different worlds, and that nothing can't be produced from nothing, or be reduced to nothing. However, Diogenes believed that the earth was round and had received its shape from the whirling around of the warm vapors, and its concretion and hardening from cold vapors. Also, Diogenete meteorites are named from Diogenes, who was the first to suggest an outer space origin for meteorites. This idea was preserved by Aetius, quote, With the visible stars revolve stones, which are invisible, and for that reason nameless. They often fall on the ground and are extinguished, like the stone star that came down on fire at Aegis the longest surviving fragment of Diogenes is that which is inserted by Aristotle in the third book of his History of Animals. It contains a description of the organization of the blood vessels in the human body. It is notable chiefly because here we can read at first hand what, in the case of the other pre Socratics, we learn only indirectly an attempt to describe in scientific detail the structure and organization of the physical world. Tradition holds that Alcmion, who worked at the medical school in Croton in the early 5th century BC, had been a pupil of Pythagoras, as his name was often found on lists of Pythagoreans given by later writers. However, Aristotle mentions him as nearly being a contemporary with Pythagoras. There seems to be that connection, though, because he wrote not only extensively on anatomy, but also on astrology and physics. A book titled On Nature is a tribute to him, and he also wrote several other medical and philosophical works, of which nothing but the titles and a few fragments have been preserved by Stobaeus, Plutarch, and Galen. All of his doctrines, though, which have come down to us, that relate to physics or medicine, seem to have arisen partly out of the speculations of the Ionian school, rather than the Pythagorean, which is largely why the scholarly consensus now tends to agree with Aristotle and contends that Alcmion is a figure independent of the Pythagoreans. Unfortunately, like most pre-Socratics, we are left with just fragments of what he actually wrote. Because of the very little evidence, though, there exists controversy to what extent Alcmion can be considered as a pre-Socratic cosmologist, or if at all. Still, though, he has been referred to by scholars as a thinker of considerable originality and a likely pioneer for his time, as one of the most eminent natural philosophers and medical theorists of antiquity. But again, due to the paucity of evidence, his contributions are often overlooked and marginalized when it comes to Hippocrates, a younger contemporary of his, who we discussed in episode 78. During Alckmion's time, the medical school at Croton was regarded as the most famous, and illnesses were studied there in a scientific and experimental manner. Alcmion was also the first to dwell on the internal causes of illnesses. It was he who first suggested that health was a state of equilibrium between opposing humors, and that illnesses were because of problems in environment, nutrition, and lifestyle. Alcmion also believed that sleep occurs by the withdrawal of blood, away from the surface of the body, to large blood-flowing vessels, and that one becomes awake again once the blood returns. And if the blood withdraws entirely, then death occurs. It has been suggested that Hippocratic authors, as well as Aristotle, adopted Alcmion's views on sleep. There are also accounts of him about embryology, or how a child develops, and analogies with humans and plants about human physiology. Alcmion was considered by many to be an early pioneer and advocate of anatomical dissection and was said to be the first to identify the eustachian tube, or the auditory tube that is the part of the middle ear. His celebrated discoveries in the field of dissection were noted in antiquity, but his knowledge in this branch of science were probably derived from the dissection of animals, not humans, as it was considered taboo for the Greeks. Chalcidius was a 4th century AD philosopher, and possibly a Christian, who translated the first part of Plato's Timaeus from Greek into Latin. His translation was the only extensive text of Plato known to scholars in the Latin West for approximately 800 years, and his extensive commentary also contained useful accounts of Greek astronomical knowledge. In it, he also praises Alcmion about his work on the nature of the eye, mentioning anecdotally that he excised an animal eye in order to study the optic nerve. However, there is no other corroborating evidence that Alcmion himself dissected in an eye, or even an animal's skull. Based on this observation, though, Alcmion supposedly, rudimentarily described the senses, except for the touch sense. These observations contribute to the study of medicine by establishing the connection between the brain and the sense organs, and outline the paths of the optic nerves, as well as stating that the brain is the organ of the mind. Many scholars believe that Plato referred to Alcman's work when writing in his Phaedo about the senses and how we, or animals, think. He also stated that the eye contains both fire and water, with vision occurring once something is seen and reflected by the gleaming and translucent part of the eye. On the next episode, we will shift our focus from the cosmological and biological to the geometrical and by extension, the astronomical, by taking a look at the lives and works of some of the earliest mathematicians, the Pythagoreans. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 85, Early Pythagoreans.